Good morning. Uh, before I start, I do want to take a moment to just say that I am deeply humbled and sincerely grateful for this opportunity. Uh, do not take it lightly at all. Um, and secondly, I want to just say, and I hope you know this, that this message is primarily to myself. I have been so convicted and challenged in studying this passage, and I just pray that God will do that work in all of us here this morning, in addition to what he's already done in my own life. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Father, we are a needy people. I am a needy person. This morning, here in this body, Lord, there are many, many needs, many legitimate needs, many health needs, financial needs, relationship needs. But Lord, we acknowledge that our greatest need is you. And Lord, we need to hear from you. Lord, if we do not hear from you this morning, then we are wasting our time. So Lord, I pray the authority of your word that you would come and that you would move in our hearts, Lord, that you would increase our faith. God, we know from the book we'll be looking at this morning, from Hebrews, Lord, that your word is sharp as a two-edged sword, Lord, and it and it will work, Lord. It will either work repentance and faith or it will work destruction. So, Lord, we pray that this morning that you would use your word to work faith in us. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. As Pliable and Christian find themselves walking together toward the narrow gate, we see the stark contrast between the two pilgrims. One is burdened, the other is not. One is clutching a book that is light to his path, the other is guideless. One is on the journey in pursuit of deliverance from besetting sin and rest for his soul. The other is on the journey in order to obtain future delights that temporarily dazzle his mind. One is slow in plotting because of his great weight and a sense of his own unrighteousness. The other is light-footed and impatient to obtain all the benefits of heaven. One is in motion because his soul has been stirred up to both fear and hope. The other is dead to any spiritual fears, longings, or aspirations. One is seeking God. The other is seeking self-satisfaction. One is a true pilgrim. The other is false and fading. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck it up, heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. 
In response to why he was seeking the celestial city, Christian replied, Why it is there I hope to see my Savior who hung upon the tree. I am weary of my inward sickness. I desire to be with company that will continually cry, Holy, holy, holy. I seek a place that can never be destroyed, one that is pure and that fadeth not away, and it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be given at the time appointed to them that seek it with all their heart. So we're selected quotes from John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress, and I think those passages from John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life as a pilgrim are helpful in setting the tone and tenor of the passage we'll be looking at today. I'm going to start off with what I'll call my preliminary big idea. I don't think I could be faithful in Ron's pulpit without using a big idea. So (laughs) my preliminary big idea is that living and dying in faith as a pilgrim magnifies the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. As the old hymn states, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our purpose is eternal. The chief end of man is to know God and enjoy Him forever. That is an eternal purpose. This life here today is temporary, is passing So we need guidance, we need wisdom as to how we can navigate this temporary life in light of our eternal purpose. And I think this passage sheds light on that. So let's talk about the context of Hebrews for just a moment. As many of you know, the book of Hebrews does not have a defined human author. I don't think it's necessary for us to delineate that because... Those of us who believe in the inherency of Scripture believe that regardless of the human that penned these words, that this Scripture was God-breathed, that God is the ultimate author of the book of Hebrews. The book appears to be written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing intensifying persecution for their belief in Christ, specifically for their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, in Jesus as God Himself. From the exhortations within the book, it appears that these Jewish Christians are contemplating returning to Judaism, returning to the Levitical system to escape persecution. Over and against that apostasy, over and against that return to Judaism is the theme of the book of Hebrews, which is that Jesus is better. Jesus' priesthood is better than any high priest of the Old Testament. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is infinitely superior to any Levitical sacrifice in the Old Testament. The redemption that His sacrifice brings is better than the temporary atonement provided by the shedding of an animal's blood. The law of Christ that is written on the heart of the Christian is better than the law of Moses in the Old Testament. The true family of Christ is better than the physical lineage of Abraham. King Jesus is infinitely superior to any Davidic king, and Christ himself is better than any type of Christ in the Old Testament. Though there are many significant truths in the the book of Hebrews, the 
primary theme, the central message of the Old Testament is, or Hebrew, excuse me, is that Jesus is better, better than anything. In our passage's closer context, we see what is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith or the Faith Chapter. This book is primarily a book that starts off with a very brief description of faith and then goes on to list Old Testament saints and gives a brief synopsis of what they did in faith. If you would, if you're not already there, turn with me to Hebrews 11. We're going to read verses 13 to 16 together. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This morning, I would like to present to you the power of the pilgrim life, the path of the pilgrim life the pitfall of the pilgrim life, and the pursuit of the pilgrim life. First, the power of the pilgrim life. You could also say the defining characteristic of the pilgrim life. Looking at the verse, these all died in faith. Who died? This verse is undoubtedly referring to the names immediately preceding these verses, namely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. I believe that it can be applied to all those saints there in Hebrews 11, the exception of Enoch, because he didn't die. But more importantly, how did they die? In faith. The power of the pilgrim life is faith. The defining characteristic of the pilgrim life is faith. The only way that any of these saints in Hebrews 11 lived the pilgrim life was by faith. The only way that any of us can live a faithful pilgrim life today is by faith. Now, what is faith? I appreciate what A.W. Tozer said regarding faith. In the scriptures, there's practically no effort made to define faith. Outside of brief 14-word definition in Hebrews 11.1, I know of no biblical definition. Even there, faith is defined functionally, not philosophically. So that is, it is a statement of what faith is in operation, not what it is in essence. It assumes the presence of faith and shows what it results in rather than what it is. We'll be wise to go just that far and attempt to go no further. I had rather exercise the faith than know the definition thereof. In looking at the operation of faith, I think one of the clearest illustrations we can see of what faith produces is in the life of Abraham. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Bible says that Abraham was justified by faith. We see that the result of Abraham's faith was justification. Now, what did promises did Abraham specifically, but more broadly all these saints, what promises did they have faith in? 
There were a variety of promises given specifically to Abraham, but to many saints throughout the Old Testament. But the central promise, the clearest promise of the Old Testament is that a Redeemer is coming. A Savior is coming. Chiefly, Jesus is coming. Though these saints had only an obscure view of the reality of what it would be when Christ actually came to earth, it, nevertheless, they, their faith in the promise of God is what justified them. And they are justified by the blood of Jesus just as we are justified by the blood of Jesus. The second half of this section says that they greeted the promises from afar. What does this mean? Well, the Greek word here for greeted can also be translated as embraced. These Old Testament saints embraced the promise of Christ. So I was thinking of how to, what it looks like to embrace a promise. I could not help but think of an illustration during, it was the months immediately preceding War II, it was Poland. There was a young man who lived there with his father. They were Jews. And as the war became increasingly vivid that it would happen, the, the father decided he could not keep his son safe, so he sent his son away to England to live with his aunt and uncle. The father and son were very close, and the, the son pleaded with the father not to send him away, but the father said that, that was the only way he could keep him safe. So he sent him away, and, but he sent him with a, a letter and told him, the son only to open that letter if he ceased hearing from his father. Well, within a month, uh, Germany attacked Poland, and the son never heard from his father again. When he ceased hearing from his father, he went and he opened the letter and it was simply a promise from his father saying that he would find him no matter what. As the weeks turned to years of never hearing from his father, that son treasured that promise of his father. And despite all the cautions of those around him about the chances of that promise actually coming to fruition, he embraced that promise. He believed that promise. After the war was over, he went back to the city where he and his father had lived. It was nothing but shambles. He couldn't find his father. But after a few months, he found his father in a hospital where he was weak and frail from Nazi prison camps. But he, he found him and he embraced him. To embrace the promise of Christ is to love that promise. And just as that young man one day was able to exchange that letter of promise for the person of his father, so one day we will exchange the word of God's promise to us for the person of Jesus Christ. I think you know, don't you, that there's a significant difference between embracing the promise of Christ and giving intellectual assent to the facts of God's promise. I think in the Bible we can see illustrations of the difference in acknowledging in your head that Jesus Christ is Savior and truly embracing that promise of redemption. I think it's the difference between Judas and Peter. 
It's the difference between Christians and demons and the devils. We know from the word that the devils know that Jesus is God. Namely, the difference between embracing and believing in faith the promise of the gospel and giving intellectual assent to it is the difference between heaven and hell. Back to us today, again, these saints had only obscure and few promises of God that they put their faith and trust in, that they embraced. How much more should we who have the inspired Word of God that gives us the clear description of Jesus Christ, His life and death and resurrection, how much more should we embrace these promises? So by way of application, embrace the promises of Christ. Know, study, delight in, meditate upon the promises of Christ to us. The scripture states that this will increase our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this will give us the result of that faith will be the ability to live the pilgrim life. The path of the pilgrim life, number two. having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. The path of the pilgrim life is the path of seeking a homeland. The Greek word in this passage for exile can also be translated pilgrim. I think in our context that is a better translation. The meaning of pilgrim is essentially a temporary sojourner. That's exactly what we are. When thinking about what it means to live this type of pilgrim life, I could not help but think of the time I spent uh, in college. As Phil stated, I'm a nurse. I went to Pensacola Christian College. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, now I know if someone just took an objective look at my life at Pensacola Christian College, even for just a week, perhaps even, a, even for just a day, it will be clear to that objective observer that my purpose in being at that institution was to be a nurse. I mean, I ordered my sleep, I ordered my friends, I ordered my time, my money. Everything I did at that institution revolved around my purpose in being a nurse. It would be very simple, as I said, for someone to take an objective look at my life at Pensacola Christian College and say his purpose is to be a nurse. And then I thought about my life today. I thought, could someone objectively look at my life? Just this past week, could they objectively look at my life and say his purpose is Christ? As I thought about it, I was convicted because I know that it would be a much easier conclusion to draw in my life, my purpose, Pensacola Christian College was to be a nurse than it would to be objectively say, Andrew's life right now, this week, his total and complete devotion is to Christ. Why were these pilgrims seeking a homeland? 
C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. As I stated earlier, the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy Him forever. This will not totally and ultimately be fulfilled in this life. Therefore, it is a good and right thing to have a longing for Christ, to have a longing for heaven. On the flip side of that, I think that if there is no sense in which you do not feel at home, there is no sense in which you do not feel like you have found your resting place. There's no nothing inside you at all that feels that there you are made for something more than you have found your homeland. So by way of application, I think we should order our lives, order our families, order everything that we do in light of the fact that, as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Live life with an eternal perspective. Now, there are many ways you can cultivate this eternal perspective, but I think one way is to embrace the promises of Christ. As I was reading through and studying passages related to this, I could not help but think of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.2, which states, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I don't have time to go into all the context of this verse, but Paul here is using tent as a metaphor for our bodies. What more fundamental possession could we think of than our bodies? Paul says even that, if it's destroyed, essentially, it doesn't matter. Because we have a body that God will resurrect that is eternal. It will abide in His presence. The pitfall of the pilgrim life. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Salvation comes through faith in the gospel. These Old Testament saints were justified by their belief in the promises, in the promise specifically. But the faithful lives of them after their belief and in the same way the faithfulness of our lives after our justification is what manifests the true pilgrim of of God. It's not what justifies us, but those who have been justified will live faithfully. So let's look specifically at Abraham in reference to this verse. Abraham was called by God out of Ur to be a pilgrim and a sojourner in search of God's promise. Many years later, when his son Isaac was 
of the age of marriage, he sent his servant back to their previous homeland to find a wife for Isaac. Now, this is all paraphrased, but it is what happened. And essentially, the servant says, okay, I'll go and I'll look for a wife for Isaac, but say she won't come with me. Can I bring Isaac back to your previous home, so essentially to convince her to come with Isaac? Abraham says, no. He says, you swear to me, you will not take Isaac back to that land from which God has called us out. Abraham was totally convinced that God had called he and his family to a pilgrim life, called them out from that previous homeland. He was unwilling to even allow his son to go back there, even though it was temporary. God has called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. He has called us to total and complete allegiance to the king of glory, to completely turn our backs on the sin that formerly enslaved us. I do find myself from time to time thinking things that I should not think. I think of those people that I knew in my later years of high school and even some in college who had completely devoted themselves to pursuing earthly pleasure, pursuing earthly riches, or pursuing satisfaction in this life. And sometimes I can't help but think of, well, if I had devoted myself as they had, think of how much pleasure I would have. Think of how much riches I might have or think of the satisfaction I might have gained. But then I stop as the Holy Spirit moves to, con- to me to consider the end of those sinful pursuits. The ultimate end, not the temporary pleasure or satisfaction they might bring me, but the ultimate end of those pursuits is despair and death. I think that this verse is teaching this, that if we allow ourselves to dwell on anything that God has redeemed us from or that God has kept us from, if we dwell on and desire for and long for those things, then we will abandon the pilgrim life and return to that darkness that God has called us from. So by way of application, I think it is, again, a good and a right thing to consider the end of your sinful desires. Consider the end that the Bible clearly teaches will be any pursuit outside of Christ and contrast that to the promised end of the pursuit of Christ. And then finally, the pursuit of the pilgrim life. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He's prepared for them a city. This verse says that they desired a better country. 
is to say they desired the promise of God, desired the presence of God. What makes this country better? What makes this city better? Is it because the streets are made of gold? Because there's no sickness or no death, no hunger? No. It's because the manifest presence of God is there. That's why these Old Testament saints desired this heavenly dwelling because the presence of God is there. We as New Testament saints can take this a step further. Jesus Christ is there. Our Redeemer is there. The the desire for Christ, the pursuit of Christ is the goal or the pursuit of the pilgrim life. To know God and enjoy Him and then to know Him more is the pursuit of the pilgrim life. I originally entitled this point when I gave the message previously the pinnacle of the pilgrim life, but I think that gave the idea that it was something that we could be reached and attained and steady there. But that will never be attained in this life. It is a constant pursuit. It is an upward trajectory towards knowing God and loving Him more and knowing Him more and loving Him more because we know Him more. Let's take just a moment to consider this astounding statement. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Remember the first time I read that statement, God is not ashamed to be called their God, I thought, what? There's no other verse in the Bible like that that uses that phraseology. So immediately what came to my, my mind were two thoughts in relation to myself. One, I am ashamed of myself. I'm a sinner. I am shameful. I'm ashamed of myself. How can God not be ashamed of me? And second, is God ever ashamed? I think the answer to the first question is the heart of the gospel. So let's look first at... This in context, this statement, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He took this a step further in the Old Testament. He proclaimed himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how could God say that about these men? If you don't know Old Testament history too well, you might think that, well, they're the founders of Israel. You know, God called them out. They were, you know, the patriarchs, I guess. You know, God could say he's not ashamed of them. I mean, it's better than saying he's not ashamed of, you know, Jezebel or Lot or something like that. Then if you know your Old Testament history, you know that these men were not worthy of this proclamation. We consider that the stand, God's standard is perfect and total obedience to him. And look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just as we fall woefully short, they fall woefully Short. Just Abraham. So the promise of God, one of the promises of God to him was that he would make of him a great nation. Ultimately, that that nation would produce the Redeemer. And in spite of this grand and glorious promise, Abraham became impatient for that promise to be fulfilled. 
and conceived with a woman other than his wife to try to bring this promise into fruition instead of patiently waiting on the timing and the promise of God. Twice he scribed with his wife to lie about who she was in relation to him, putting her in danger, almost having her killed just to protect himself. These men were not worthy of that proclamation, just as none of us are worthy of that proclamation. So how? Why can God say this about them? This verse starts with the word, therefore, which means this is based on what was previously stated. We see a hint in the verse immediately preceding, they desired a better country, but it is not desire that caused God to be able to proclaim that he was unashamed of them. This desire was the result or the outworking of faith. It was because of their faith in the promise of God that God could say that he was unashamed of them. Because it is faith that produces justification. Now, we might not try to philosophically or define faith, but the Bible clearly defines in many places justification. Justification is that glorious exchange in which Christ takes on our sin and our rebellion and gives us His righteousness. The reason that God can look at any of us, that He could look at any of the Old Testament saints, the reason He can look at any of us and proclaim that He is unashamed is because when He looks at those who have faith in His promise, those who have believed the gospel, does not see their sin. He sees the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And when He looks out and He sees the righteousness of Christ covering us, He can say, I'm unashamed. Now, second question, can God ever be ashamed? I think that we know that God is Sovereign, and he works all things according to his will. So God cannot essentially be ashamed. So why is it phrased this way? I think that it is a warning. This passage stating that if you have no desire for Christ, if there is no evidence of faith in the gospel in your life, the implication is not that God is your God and He is ashamed of you. The implication is that God is not your God. I think specifically in the South, I know of a lot of people who have this mentality almost that God is like, especially if they're raised in a conservative home, that God is like their earthly father, who though they may rebel and sin against their earthly father and do all types of shameful things and live in total rebellion to his fatherhood, that, well, he's still my father. He's still going to love me. He's still going to come and rescue me if I need rescuing. I think that's the image that a lot of us, especially in the South, have of Heavenly Father. Because I prayed a prayer when I was five, that though I've lived in complete rebellion to the King of Glory since then, that one day when I really need Him, He will 
save me. Or when I die, he will still take me into his presence. That is not the gospel teaching. The gospel teaches is you live with no evidence of faith in your life that you are your God. Finally, for he has prepared for them a city. Christ has prepared a place in which we will eternally be in personal fellowship with the King of glory. Jonathan Edwards said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only true happiness in which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven. As it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? So by way of application in this point, live a pilgrim life that displays a desire for Christ above all else. How, what are some ways we can do this? Well, can embrace the promises of Christ. We can cultivate a pilgrim mindset that has an eternal perspective. We should consider the end of our sinful desires. We should consider the supremacy and sufficiency of God manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'd like to return for just a moment to back to that phrase in the first verse, these all died in faith. All these Old Testament saints listed in Hebrews 11, uh, they had many characteristics. They were fathers, sons, children, some were farmers, some were prophets, some were prostitutes. But I think the defining characteristic of each and every one of those saints in the Old Testament listed in Hebrews 11 was faith in the promise of God. If you stripped away all their other characteristics, all their other categories they would fit into, I think that fundamentally the defining characteristic of them was that they were believers in the promise of Christ. Promise of God. In much the same way, I think that all of us today, there are many people in this room with many different characteristics, many different ways to define themselves. But for those of us who are redeemed, fundamentally and essentially, the only thing we have is Christ. As pilgrims in this life, the only thing that we truly possess is Christ. Which brings me to, I think, uh, a 
condensed version of my preliminary big idea, which is just simply all I have is Christ. All you have is Christ. All we have is Christ. Now, it's easy to say that all I have is Christ, but to actually embrace that reality is far more difficult. But I do pray that each of us here today, starting with myself, would live out this reality. Pray that the truth of this passage will increase the faith of our body here at Redeemer, and that this faith would result in a greater passion for living a pilgrim life in pursuit of our eternal purpose. If you would bow your heads with me for just a moment. I would ask you to just take a moment to consider your life as I have done many times throughout this week, to look at it and to evaluate. Am I living a life in which my faith is worked out in a total allegiance to Christ? Am I living as a pilgrim in this life? Am I looking towards my eternal purpose, my eternal fellowship with Jesus Christ? Is the way that my family, my job, my life, my finances, everything that I have, is it ordered in a way that reflects that my only true possession is Christ? My home is heaven, that I'm just a pilgrim here. God, I do pray earnestly now for myself and for this body here at Redeemer and for the visitor. God, that you would give us grace. Grace to live by faith. That that faith would produce in us a longing and a desire to live as a pilgrim in pursuit of your glory above all else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.